You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. Music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a lovely March day. I'm looking outside and there is sun and then there's clouds and then there's sun and then there's clouds. And it's been a very confusing week. We were up in the 70s. I hear we're going to get down to 50 something. What's we going are, on? What the Weather Service calls this is mostly sunny and then tonight is partly cloudy. That's sort of a spectrum. <laughs> but, <laughs> describing exactly the same thing mostly sunny partly cloudy we have been we have been unusually warm for this time of year garden centers are bustling with activity people are coming out they're getting out there wanting to garden and i've got to remind you that the night temperatures have been although we're around 40 right now we've actually we're down at 34 one morning a few days ago 36 just the other morning so the nights are at least you know early sunrise temperatures are still chilly by our standards. I realize there are people listening in other places who are guffawing as I say this, but uh, by our standards, it's a little chilly at that time of day for certain plants. So that's why we don't have tomato plants yet. We don't even probably need to go into that this week. We'll save that topic for another time. The temperature today is going to be 69 degrees and tonight is going to be 42. Nights are a little bit warmer. Uh, Thursday is going to be 66 and sunny. Thursday night, 40 degrees, mostly clear. Remember, we record these shows on Wednesday if you hear them on Thursday. So, you know, we're a day off in terms of uh, the, the weather forecast. Friday is going to be mostly sunny, 66 degrees. Friday night, here's a, here's a novel twist, chance of showers. Saturday, slight chance of shower, then mostly sunny. So Friday night, a little storm passing over us. Saturday night is going to drop down to about 39. Friday, Saturday is going to be 60 degrees. Saturday night, 39 degrees, sunny. On Sunday, 62, Monday, chance of rain. How about that? 59 degrees and Monday night, chance of rain, 42. These don't look like big storms. But we haven't had one in about three weeks or so, and we're way, way behind on rainfall here. Um, if you want to find out the status of our rainfall, the reservoirs and all that kind of stuff, and you don't want to go to all those links that you'll find at davisgardenshow.com. They're there. I've posted those links somewhere. We have them um, up pretty high on the page if you want to check out all the different resources I go to. But if you're on Twitter, go to Daniel Swain, UC Davis grad who now works down uh, UCLA, I think. His Twitter updates are phenomenal. He writes the blog, Weather West blog. He updates it there on Twitter. And he'll tell you all about what's happening, where the, where the rain is going, where it isn't going, what the drought status is, which is severe uh, for this year, and so on. And he'll give you all the atmospheric science explanations of all that. That's Daniel Swain, S-W-A-I-N, or just look for Weather West. And his blog is phenomenal. I get a lot of information from it every couple of weeks when he updates it. 
And that'll tell you the overall picture of where we in the West are in terms of rainfall, water storage in the reservoir, snowpack, and all that kind of thing. The downside of it is the water resources. The upside is that day after day after day is sunny, great gardening weather, and people are coming out like crazy, coming into nurseries and asking for stuff that we don't have. So <laughs> that, brings, that brings us to one of our very first topics that I think I sent over to you, Lois. It's the availability issue, yeah. Um, and this is an industry-wide situation. This is not just us here in Davis. But the things that Don said are, are not available either yet or at all, and I'm not sure which of these is which. Uh, fruit trees, avocados, citrus, uh, perennials, seed packets, and pottery. So which of these are delayed? No, well... Those are I shouldn't even say delayed. They're, they're just, they're not ready yet because it's not time yet. Yeah, some of, them, some of them are going to be ongoing and have been ongoing chronic shortages across the industry. We need to explain that at the start of the pandemic, there was a huge surge of interest. Wonderful to see in growing your own vegetables. And that gradually increased to growing your own fruit trees and pretty much anything you could do in your backyard that might make some food or be a fun project with kids or whatever. We were delivering plants to group homes to you know people who are homeschooling obviously you're all homeschooling right now um and also to a lot of young families that had never gardened before that suddenly wanted to start a vegetable garden and last year sales of things like vegetable plants increased dramatically there was a big backlog in availability of packet seeds you know you go into a nursery to buy seed packets on the seed rack they were backlogged like they just weren't ready for this and there that is still there on some of those things with the vegetable plants there's going to be good availability because the growers, you know, ramped up, increased production, looked at their last year's sales, made their schedules for this year, have things going. They're already shipping out tomatoes and peppers and eggplant and all that stuff in the places where that's appropriate. And of course, in a lot of places where it's not appropriate, you'll see them in a lot of different places. But the seed packets are a good example. We keep getting updates about every one to two weeks from our main seed packet supplier telling us what the inventory shortages are, asking us, please don't order way ahead. Order what you need, not more than you need, because they're just having trouble getting the packets and filling them. So there's, that's a demand issue. A lot of it, though, is something that most people don't really think about or understand, which is that nursery plants are a crop. You know, if you want a citrus tree right now, that was started a year ago or a year and a half ago, depending on the production system and the type of citrus and all that kind of thing. And they need some heat and sunlight in order to put on enough top and root growth to be saleable by the standards of the wholesaler. And if demand comes in early, um, they'll ship out what they have left over from last year, and then it'll be sometime in the spring before the next batch is available. And if they know that demand is high, they may ration them as some of them do to various of us as retailers they'll say you can buy four of each variety no more that's what i keep running into uh, avocados they're none they're just simply not available from any northern california growers right now there probably won't be until may or june and this is really hard to explain to people because you're used to going to the grocery store and if they're out of kellogg's cornflakes there'll be some there the next morning because they go to a warehouse and get them these are living things. I know this sounds very fundamental, but if we keep explaining this in the simplest way possible, you want lavender plants? They just put them in pots a few weeks ago. They're not ready to sell. They'll be ready to sell in April when they have some heat. I know you're ready now, but the plants aren't ready now. And so once you begin to think of these living things as actually crops with cycles of production, 
which don't bend to our demands, they bend, they follow the growth habit of that plan, um, you'll understand that, that we don't have something now. It'll be perhaps four to six weeks. It might be two months in the case of something a lot slower. And I can tell you a couple things, fruit trees in general, almost all of us are practically sold out of our bare root fruit trees. Normally we would be potting a lot of those and carrying them into the spring and summer for you to choose from. I have two peach trees left. That's two. it? Well, Ooh. right now, I'm, for all I know, I'm at home. For all I know, they, they might have sold. Um, <laughs> and, and normally I'd have, you know, in my little tiny nursery, 20 or 30 that I'm putting into pots, letting them grow out so you could come in April or May and buy some. So these are just availability issues and they're going to be challenging for people to navigate because we keep hearing things like, well, I want to get it planted before it gets too hot. Well, if it's not available, you're going to plant it when it's hot and you're going to water it correctly. It'll all be fine. The other, is, uh, the other one that's kind of interesting and has been an almost a year-long problem now is pottery. Uh, our pottery, like every other garden center, comes from China, Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore, Thailand, Vietnam, Italy. Every one of those countries had issues and still has issues in many cases. So at this point, and I know this is true with other retailers at almost every scale of operation in retail garden center business, I order, I get hmm, 60%, 40% of what I ordered. And the sales rep keeps sending us updated forms going, hey, here you go, here's some, we got some new cargo containers in from Thailand. And we order and we get 40%, 60%. I've gotten to the point where I'm joking, it's like Christmas, you know, what you ask for and what you get, <laughs> maybe two different things. And so we just keep ordering and it's not just us. It's not the other store in town that sells pottery. It's not unique to us. This is across the industry. It's a combination of demand coupled with some severe supply chain shortages or, or complications in the case of pottery in particular. So be patient with your garden center employee when she says to you for the fourth time, We'd love to sell you lavender, but we don't have any. It'll be here in April or May because that's just the way it's going to go. So you'll have to be patient. A lot of places are willing to take your email or phone number and send you a note or text when things do come in. Uh, it's complicated. So it's a lot of places don't do that, but many will. Or others, you just keep checking back and see what's in bloom. There's lots of stuff to plant. There's garden centers are full of plants. They may, may just not be the five items you were looking for on your particular planting project list. So if I have a, a, a new garden section and I have figured out I want this, 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 and that, mm -hmm. um, and three of those are not available, but will be in another six weeks or so. Like so that. here's my thought. Um, maybe I should get everything ready now mm -hmm. and then just take an empty pot, you know, that the plant's going to come in a, a one gallon pot mm -hmm. and I'll fill it with soil and I put it in where the plant's going to go with a stick in it that says, <laughs> this is the myrtle tree or this is the whatever. So that I, I remember what it is and I, I've, I've done all the work. So when it, it comes in, all I need to do is pull out the pot of dirt and take the plant out and stick it in a hole. Well, I get people who want to dig the holes ahead of time, and I generally suggest not doing that. I suggest digging the hole at the time you plant the plant, because if you dig it ahead of time and then you water the area, the surface of the hole kind of crusts over and you have to break it up again anyway. So I think a simpler thing is just take some mulch and put a heap of it where the plant's going to go. And, and a stake. And a stake is good if that helps you remember and water it because then, then the mulch will start, you know, working its way into the soil a little bit. Then when you go to plant, you rake it out of the way, plant the plant, pull it back over. The other thing, of course, we have people coming in who have had designs done 
And there's this whole list of plants on the design. There's almost always an alternative to the plant on the design, or you can wait and be patient and fulfill the design over a period of time. So ask the nursery professional for alternatives, or just be patient, check back periodically. Um, and here's the other thing is we don't ever get from our growers um, what they have in production and when it's gonna be ready. I, have, I know what they're growing roughly, but they don't say, all right, we'll have you know, Agastache ready in the month of May. They just say, yes, we're growing it. Because they know that if they released a production schedule, there's a whole bunch of the bigger garden center chains that would jump on and say, I want all of those. This happens in our industry. I want all of those when they're ready. And they don't really want to do that to all of their other customers. So I own my entire career of now 40 years at the Redwood Barn Nursery. I've only ever seen a production list from a grower two or three times. And each time it was given to me by a sales rep who trusted me not to misuse it. So when you ask, well, when do you think they'll be available? I have to say, I can say this is usually when these things come in. Lavenders usually come in in great supply, April, May into the summer. I can't say for sure exactly what we're going to have when. So it's just an interesting thing that we, we sell things that are more akin to the produce department of the grocery store than the dry goods department of the grocery store. If the crop ain't there, we don't have it. And we don't know exactly when it's going to come in. So we got a couple PSA type things we're supposed to do. Well, before we leave this subject, okay. um, do, do you take special orders? In other words, if I really want this Philadelphus, mm -hmm. just this particular variety, and you know that some company is making that, do you take an order, a special order, like I pay you, and when you get it in, you tell me? Every garden center differs in that regard. We have a, yes, a rather elaborate special order system. We manage it on a database. We do not take payment in advance because we can't guarantee when it will be there. And we don't actually even know, I hate to say this, what the price will be till it arrives because there are fluctuations in delivery charges and things like that. We've had many discussions on this topic in, our, in the Facebook nursery group that I'm on. And most other places do a much more limited amount of special ordering and always take a payment in advance. That's the way they work. So, and some places I've heard that one of our competitors in the area has told their growers, they're not even gonna take any special orders this year because it's just too hopeless to try and tell people when they'll be able to fulfill them. So we take them and I can sometimes give a speculative answer about when it might be available. No promises, obviously in a year when demand is so high, but uh, it'll vary depending on where you're listening. Uh, smaller garden centers are more likely to be willing to write something down and contact you. How sophisticated their record keeping system is on that varies <laughs> quite a bit. I remember one of, one of my employees worked previously at a nursery over in the foothills. Their special order system, and I put it in quotes, was the owner kept a little notepad in his pocket. And when someone would mention something, he'd write it down and put the notepad back in his pocket. And she learned to just kind of steal that every now and then <laughs> to see what he'd written down lately. So she would know when something came in, oh, I better tag this for Mrs. Smith because she'll be kind of mad if he doesn't call her. So it's, uh, we're a little more sophisticated than that, but it varies. Most places will oh. do some degree of special ordering. Well, I want to tell our listeners that Don is actually very good about this. I, I have been a customer of his long before we started doing the radio show, even before we started doing the TV show. Mm -hmm. And there have been times when I have gotten a, a bee in my bonnet about wanting this particular plant. Yep. And he said, I don't know anybody who's grown it right now, but I'll write it down. Mm -hmm. And so he would write something down, make a request. And maybe a year and a half later, <laughs> I get a call from him and he'd say, hey, Lois, 
you know that such and such you were looking for? Well, I found it. You, you still want it? And it's like, this is amazing. Like a pleasant surprise. So, thank you, Don. We found that email makes the whole thing go a lot faster, I can tell you that. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you were talking about um, PSAs, which is yes. public service announcements. And I think the most appropriate one is that one you have about COVID. Why don't you yes. read that one first? Uh, KDRT and the California Department of Public Health would like to remind our listeners of five easy steps you can take to protect yourself and your community from the novel coronavirus COVID-2019. One, wash your hands for at least 20 seconds repeatedly. Two, wear a mask at all times when leaving your home. Three, disinfect surfaces. Four, stay home when you are sick. And if you're a resident or work in Davis, you can get quick free weekly tests by registering at healthydavistogether.org or you can call 530-754-TEST. That's test, that's 530-754-TEST or healthydavistogether.org. You can also learn more at yolocounty.org coronavirus. And I do want to update that and say that the Yolo County is taking um, requests for getting vaccinations. So if you are in a health system which has their own stream of, of things, that's fine. But if you're not, go to the Yolo County website and look for their vaccination information. Those of us who are always looking for bright sides in this whole thing are having a great time right now with people in their 70s coming into our garden center is going, we got our vaccinations, and then buying a bunch of them. <laughs> <laughs> I, haven't seen, I haven't seen people in months. <laughs> well, you know, we're at, I'm a Quaker, and, and when we have meeting for worship on Sunday morning, uh, at the check-in afterwards where we all say, hi, this is how our week went kind of thing, everybody is asked to say, now, have you got your shot? Have you got your first shot? You got your second shot? We're really eager to get back into the meeting house and to be able to have in-person worship. Yeah. Um, but until enough of us are, are vaccinated, it's just not going to happen. Yep. So... Let's do a quick update on chilling hours because the sort of the official chilling hour uh, monitoring year ends on February 28th. This is the number of hours between 32 and 45 degrees that deciduous species of fruit need to, in order to go into and come out of dormancy properly, flower effectively, pollinate, and set fruit. And it varies by species and by variety. When you buy a fruit tree, you'll often see on the tag, it'll say something like 600 hours. That's referring to the number of chilling hours. And the current version that's most commonly used is the number of hours between 32 and 45 degrees. <clears throat> Excuse me, in the Davis area, uh, we hit about 730 chilling hours, which is somewhat below average, but plenty for almost anything you would be growing here. Interesting to note that Dixon, which is only, this weather station is only about 15 miles from the Davis weather station, but is closer into the Delta and more out in the open, I believe, over 900 chilling hours. So 750 to 900, which puts us if, wherever you're living around here. Our average number of chilling hours in this area, Yellow and Solano counties, as I've been tracking them for more than 20 years now, is generally about 820 or so. So somewhere in that range, and that's sufficient for just about anything you'd be growing. There had been some concern about this because of spikes of warm temperatures in January and the warmer than average temperatures we've been having in parts of February. We gained a lot of chilling hours in December 
and uh, pretty much every crop I can think of is fine at this point. Uh, elsewhere around the state, of course, it's always fun to look at how things were going in, let's say, oh, Los Angeles. And of course, the weather stations are in different places around the LA basin. Long Beach got 523 chilling hours. Palmdale, over a thousand. If you know where Palmdale is, that probably won't surprise you. Santa Monica, right there on the coast, lovely Santa Monica, you know, 60, 70 degrees year round, very similar to San Diego, 38 chilling hours. So if you're in Santa Monica, there aren't that many deciduous fruits that you can grow, but why are we bothering? You're growing avocados, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always, okay, I always, so I always like to track my parents uh, who were down in San Diego County. Uh, they were, if you know where Torrey Pines is, there's a golf course there, very famous one, a glider port. That was one mesa over from where I grew up. Chilling hours at Torrey Pines this year were 18. <laughs> oh. I remind you that my father, my father kept trying to grow. He had an apricot tree that literally never flowered. He found the lowest chill peach he could and planted it in, in the backyard. And it was, it actually fruited. It was extremely mediocre, but a seedling came up underneath it from it, from a pit that sprouted. And the, the seedling actually had better fruit. So they just chopped down the original one and kept the seedling. That tells you something. But you know, as I mentioned before, they had avocado tree in the backyard, loquat. He would do the subtropical species of fruit very well. I really suggest wherever you live, you buy and grow fruit trees that are appropriate to your region primarily. Yeah, it's fun to try and stretch the zone boundaries, but uh, you'll be probably more satisfied if you grow something that really is suitable to your area. And if you're in the coastal areas, chilling hours are a big deal. You may not have enough chilling for familiar, good quality fruit like Alberta peach, which needs several hundred chilling hours. It's just not going to work on the coast of San Diego. And in the other direction, I had a lady come in wanting to know if we sold mango trees. And I get these kind of questions periodically. Do you go, do you sell papayas? Do you sell mangoes? No, they're not going to survive our winters. That's not a chilling hours issue. That's a frost tenderness issue. But when it's that direction on the zone stretching, as we call it, I really recommend you head over to the California Rare Fruit Growers website or Facebook page, especially for your region. Uh, Sacramento area chapter of the California Rare Fruit Growers is very active on Facebook. And when I say no to a mango or no to a papaya, I always throw it, but there's probably someone in that group who has successfully found the one variety that's hardy enough to grow here and can tell you how to grow it. And they love to do that. They love to help out with things like that. So if you're trying to find some obscure, well, I shouldn't say obscure, but some fruit that isn't particularly appropriate to your region, those folks are the people to talk to. They have the practical experience that will tell you which is the one variety of macadamia nut that we could actually grow in Northern California. Hint, the answer is Beaumont. But they're, you know, in general, macadamia nuts in Northern California, no, they're not hardy up here. So if you all, listeners, are new to gardening and you're looking for your fruit tree, my suggestion is get the one that does best in your neighbor's yards. So right. walk around the neighborhood and find a fruit tree that is doing incredibly well. Find out what it is and plant one of those. Well, no, and if you want if you want those other fruits, there's always farmer's markets. There's always your grocery store, you know? Another thing is look at what your neighbor is growing and get a variety that complements that and then work with your yeah. neighbor. So if they've got a peach that comes in in July, you can go over and say, hey, I'm going to plant O'Henry, which ripens in August, and I'm going to have 500 peaches. You're going to have 500 peaches of whatever that one is. So let's make a deal. 
<laughs> I'll help you with your fruit if you'll help me with my fruit. We often get the question about we often get the question about the pluots because they need a pollinizer, and really the best pollinizer for any of the pluots and and the plums that happen to need one is the Santa Rosa plum. I always like to joke, well, just give one to your neighbor and ask them to plant it on their you know around the fence right behind you. That's close enough. All it needs is to be somewhere a bee can fly from tree to tree. What is the easiest way for a beginner to start seeds? And I'm going to say, stick some nasturtiums into Dixie cups. In something, and that's the key question, into what? Uh, first of all, make a hole in the Dixie cup in the bottom, so that works, but you've got to poke a hole yeah. with a pencil or something, otherwise you'll just have a little Dixie, Dixie bog. Um, and nasturtiums are incredibly easy. Any big seed is easy. These are, a lot of these are moms who are going, dads who are going stir crazy with their kids and want to do something. So I get give them uh, either beans or peas back in the fall or nasturtiums pretty much any time, and they'll come up easily. And there's a plant where it doesn't really matter that much if it gets leggy indoors. The, the leaves are cool, so they're pretty easy to grow. The, uh, the soil mix is probably the most important decision you make, uh, although you, there's one way you don't even have to worry about that. This is actually one of my favorites. Those little peat pellets, which you can buy at Garden Center. Uh, yes. They look like a cookie. Uh, don't bite them. <laughs> the peat moss expands. Peat moss holds, I think it's 14 times its weight in water. And so these are dry compressed peat pellets that are surrounded by a very light mesh. And this is the fun part. You set them in water and they swell up and they swell up tall. And so they go from being a little flat wafer to being something about three inches tall that is just then perfectly designed for you to stick a seed in the middle. And there's even a little indentation there for you to stick the seed in. I use these a lot as the first things that I plant in. When my pepper seeds arrive and I want to get going with them, and I'm not all set up for trays of seedling mix and all that kind of thing, I just take a, you know, you can use a, a cake pan, you can go buy our turkey roasting pan at the grocery store. You set these in it in a line, you pour in a quart of water, and you and the kids get to watch them expand. It's like magic. And you pour in enough water till they've expanded fully and the water's basically all gone. It takes about you know, a quart or two of water, depending on how many you're doing, but that's about enough for a turkey roasting pan. Then you take the seeds one by one and stick one in the dimpled indentation in the top. And I squish a little of the dirt back over them, but it, the reality is that's not absolutely necessary because peat moss holds enough moisture. And I then put that tray of each peat pellet with a seed or two particularly if it's a large seeded thing, on top of the refrigerator, because that tends to be a, an evenly warm place in your house. Your kitchen tends to be one of the warmest places most evenly throughout the day. If you have a spare bedroom or a desk or table, as I also happen to have, they get sunlight and through the south window, that's also great. And the thing about those peat pots is that they retain the moisture really well. You need to monitor them and, you know, add a little more water to the tray every now and then. And you can tell when you need to because they change color. And generally, in normal circumstances, in a normal temperature household, most things will germinate in seven to ten days. Personally, I use a heating pad that I've purchased. I have two of these. And I have them on special tables that keep the soil temperature at 70 degrees. And when I do that, things like peppers come up in three to five days. And so that speeds up the germination and it's more even when you do that. So if you're doing a lot of seed, you might invest in one of those little seedling pads, seedling heat pads. You can find them online uh, and that does make a big difference. Use a very small amount of energy, but it keeps the soil temperature evenly at about 70 degrees. But uh, the peat pellets are just really simple. There's something you can do without having to mix up soil, without having to, you know, make a clean place in the house and fill pots and all this kind of stuff. 
they're, they're a little grubby. That's about it. And there's no spillage or anything like that. So I consider that by far one of the simplest ways. When you do get up to larger volume and you're getting a container like a Dixie cup or something, you need to fill it. You'll get best results if you either buy or make a seedling mix. And the reason I say that is that disease problem we talked about earlier and we talked about many times. Seedling diseases are really frustrating when they happen. Plants growing under lower light conditions like your house are very vulnerable to them. And so if you use a potting soil or something with compost in it or something you've made yourself out of your garden stuff, you're inviting trouble with that. You're far better off getting something that's naturally sterile, not sterilized, but naturally very, very low ability to, to uh, sustain the kinds of diseases that attack young seedlings. And that's typically going to be either peat moss or coir, two different moisture retaining natural products and either sand or perlite. Personally, I use 50-50 peat moss and perlite because they're both easy to obtain. Once you get them hydrated, they're easy to work with and they, they don't lead to seedling diseases and they're loose. The roots develop very quickly once the plant sprouts in them. Quar is fine. It's a little trickier to work with. It's a little clumpier. Some people prefer that. Some people like sand instead of perlite. Okay, that's all fine. But they're just basically naturally in a, have less ability to sustain a disease problem that's going to attack your seedling. So that's why I use those. No compost, no fertilizer. The seed has everything it needs for the first part of the process. And this is the key for success. As soon as they're up, sunlight and air movement. As soon as they're up. So if you live in a place where it's too cold outside, you should probably get some LED lights or some grow lights and put those right over the plants. And many people do this with good success but also figure out a way to get some air movement on them. Just a fan in the room, maybe all it takes. Keep, keep those seedling stems moving. That releases ethylene gas that's in the, in the plant. That's a natural occurring plant hormone that causes the stem to get thicker. I do that by putting them out on the front porch, but I'm in a place where I'm, if I put them on the front porch, it's 50 degrees because I do it in the morning and I bring them back in in the evening. But if you're in a place where you can't do that, supplemental lighting and something to move the plants will make a big difference in how stout sturdy, self-supporting the seedlings will be. This is the next most important thing. Keep them moving in terms of their root volume. We've learned this the hard way when we start plants at our garden shop, where we get really busy and they're sitting in those seedling trays getting more and more root bound. Those plants take a long time to recover from that when you move them to the next stage. As soon as there are two to four true leaves on these seedlings, move them up into either the next pot that they're gonna grow in, if you're waiting for them to go out into the garden, or right out into the containers if your climate allows that. Don't let them get very root bound in the small seedling pot, the peat pot, or whatever you've, you know, whatever you've started them in, the Dixie cup. So that's gonna be four to six weeks after you start the seed, be prepared to move them to the next size. Those are really the key things, I think. Air movement, light, keep them moving, use a medium that's basically pretty naturally sterile, you'll get good results. Your house is not a perfect place for starting seeds. It's got the right temperature, but it's too low light. So you have to kind of do this shuffle I do every morning where eight flats right now are going on the front porch in the morning and coming back in at the end of the day, or figure out some way to make that work in your situation. A uh, question about those peat pots. You said you, you poke the seed in and then it, it does its thing. Yep. Well, what happens when you go to to move it to a larger container because it must be really hard to get those roots out from the, the peat. Right, and you don't. This is the thing about them. Um, we, one of the cool things about these is you can just lift this slightly spongy peat pot up every day and you can see as soon as the white root hairs hit the bottom of the tray or whatever they're in. 
And as soon as they do that, in my opinion, they're ready to go up to the next size. And you just take a four inch pot or a quart pot, if that's the appropriate to the plant, a tomato could perhaps go all the way up into a gallon size if you want to. And you just take it and I just basically tear the bottom. I'll be watching the webcam following along at home. <laughs> tear the bottom off this little beet thing. I just, I, I just tear it, that's all. And I put it right into the fresh soil in the new, you know, the next stage of transplant. So you don't actually tear off that soil or anything like that. It stays intact, the roots immediately run out into the new soil. And so it's just a very handy way to go because again, that's not a messy operation. This is something, again, you could do on the dining table with a couple of newspapers down and clean up in a minute. Uh, you're just taking them, putting into the next, the, now you're using potting soil. You'd make a little thing in there, you push them down in, you bring the soil back around them, you take them outside, you water in to settle the soil, you're good to go. Well, that's certainly easier than my Dixie cups because there I have to cut around the bottom to get the bottom part off and then carefully holding the thing with my hand underneath it, put it into the next thing, slip the sides, take that. It's a pain. You should be able to slide Everything right falls apart. You should be able <laughs> to slide it right out of a Dixie cup. So when people right? do those, yeah, you should be able to. If, if it's rooted in, if it's got two true leaves on it and it's a vigorous plant and you can, you can, you can just to hold the cup, this is where a camera would be great. Hold the cup with the stem of the plant between your forefinger and your second finger, carefully flip it over. I do this all the time to check the root systems on plants. It should slide right out. You can check whether it's fully rooted, beginning to circle. That tells you it's time to transplant it. So with just a little bit of a shake, now the grown-up should probably do this first. With just a little bit of a shake, it should come right out into your hand and that soil will have bound itself together by ionic attraction and the growth of fungal mycelia and probably the roots beginning to hold it together. It should hold its shape and should be ready to go into the pot. But it is something that you get the hang of it the more you do it. So no, you don't, what you never do is grab a plant by the stem and pull. I have a friend who wrote to me and said, I will quote his letter. I have a second floor balcony. On top of the half wall, I have flower pots. In the summer, it gets blistering hot up there because it faces south and has no shade. Can you recommend some flowers that might survive there? I had thought that nothing would, but as I've learned about plants and animals and some that live on the bottom of the ocean or below freezing or <laughs> don't even have red blood cells, I've thought there may be some plants that could thrive in the um, Hades that is my balcony. I had to change that word there. Um, so, second floor balcony facing south in Davis, um, and it's pots. And so I, of course, wrote back, and I gave him this big, long thing. It's, it's, you can read it. It's in there. Um, and I, I said, well, how much soil can you put yeah. in there? In other words, behind that half wall, could you put a half barrel? Or have you got, you know, is it, is it on top of the wall? And is it little tiny pots, four-inch pots? Or can you have maybe a, a, a flower? box or something box, yeah. So, yeah how how much can you have and then I then I talked a little bit about what was possible but I thought I'd I'd ask you to to weigh in on this and yeah. uh, what would you say yeah reminder to listeners we're in USDA zone 9 which is just tells you about our winter cold we're in sunset zone 14 sunset zones 8 9 and 14 are the valley zones of California uh, of Northern California. So Sacramento Valley or the Valley of the Moon, if you're over in the Napa area, 
um, uh, anywhere all the way up to practically almost Redding. So we're hot in the summer. That's what the USDA zone doesn't tell you. We're hot and we're very dry. Here's a random weather note. This is March 3rd. Last week, the day of the show and the next two days, this is February, our humidity never got above 20%. Not even, <laughs> not even at night. And usually our humidity, even in the summer, recovers to 50, 60% at night. But we had a north wind episode in February where the humidity did not get above 20%. The daytime humidities for the, that 48, actually 72 hour period were below 10%. So we have people watering now, much less what they're gonna be doing in June, July, August. And when we get people who are new to the area, they come in and they notice that our particular garden center, we don't sell a lot of hanging baskets. We don't sell yeah. a lot of window boxes. We don't sell a lot of shallow planter boxes. I've been to those charming cities like Victoria, British Columbia. I was only like 10 years old when we went there. They had hanging baskets on the streetlights. You know, they had, hanging, they had planters on every storefront because you know what? It doesn't get blazing hot and it isn't 10% humidity. So if they go three, four days without remembering to water, very likely even the petunias will be fine with that, much less, you know, the things that we might do here. So shallow window boxes, you know, those, they, there's, wholesalers have these and I could buy them and sell them. They're like six inches by six inches by mm -hmm. maybe eight inches deep. And the only thing that's gonna grow in that is a succulent. I mean, there's just no way you're gonna do flowers outside of the lovely spring period of mid-February to mid-April, that's our spring, or the lovely fall period of 1st of November to the end of November, that's our fall. <laughs> <laughs> Those are going to be, this is gonna be too hot, dry, windy, low humidity for any normal flowering plant. And so I see these at, at hardware stores and stuff, and I just think you'd have to plant them for people. That's the only way it's gonna work. You have to plant them with suitable plants. Uh, however, like getting to your question, which was really, you know, your comment, which is really pertinent, the bigger it is, the better. I have a customer who has olive trees on a hot deck in, in half barrels. And they decided to go and get normal size olives, not, not even the little miniature olive that, that we sell. There's a, there's a couple miniature olives you can buy that are just baby olive trees. But there's, they wanted normal looking olive tree. That was a the look they were after. So they had, had us order some serious 15 gallon olive trees and some barrels and they put them out there and as long as and they ran a drip line that goes up behind them so they don't even see the drip line and emitter goes up in there and it comes on with the lawn watering that's happening nearby normally an olive tree in the ground wouldn't need lawn watering but an olive tree in a container in our climate that's just about the right cycle for it so if you can keep it watered and if it's something that can tolerate being root bound and can take extreme temperatures and low humidity you'll do well and the watering is going to be the absolute key uh, there are soils that retain moisture better than others, but the small containers, you know, I, we brought in 10 inch hanging baskets with petunias and we have to water them twice a day at our garden center. So are you going to remember to do that twice a day, every day from let's say May 1st through October? I think it's unlikely. At some point you might actually want to, I don't know, go away for a day or two <laughs> and uh, you'll come back and they'll be dead. So we do put those together for people and we almost always use succulents or we use things like succulents, like portulaca, which is an annual flowering succulent. We plant them anytime from May through the middle of the summer. They give lots of really colorful flowers. The common name most of you know for that is moss rose, but it's actually a succulent. It trails really nicely. Those could go a few days without water because like other succulents, they store some moisture in the stem and in the leaf. Uh, geraniums, one of the reasons geraniums are the absolute classic garden flower in Italy, 
and Greece and places like that. Every doorstop, you know, they have a nice big clay pot filled with geraniums because they store water in their stem and in their leaves. So they're functionally like succulents, except we treat them as garden perennials. And we're lucky enough to live in a place where even if they frost back a little bit, they always come back. So you don't actually even have to protect them in the winter. You just figure they'll look a little rough and they'll re-sprout. So those are options in the sun. We've mentioned these in the past, just the common garden geranium, not the ivy geraniums, which I prefer a little more shade, not the Martha Washington pelargoniums, which are a little more fussy about the watering, but the plain old common garden geraniums. I know this is pedestrian and boring, but the reason for that is that it's used so much because it's so adaptable. And the only issue you have there is they're well known for the caterpillar problem that gets on the flowers, but that's a separate issue. So I wouldn't have recommended those because of the budworm issue. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. What about something like daylilies or dwarf cosmos? Daylilies will toast. I mean, daylilies will just oh. dry out. I, we, in our nursery, we sell, daylil we sell daylilies in gallon containers. and We want to get them sold when they're in their first peak of bloom. And then as we get into hotter weather, we move them to where there's a little afternoon shade on the plant. In the garden, in the ground, they're great because they have big fleshy roots and they can establish themselves and they can take just about anything. Probably the easiest perennial in the world to grow. But unless the container is very big, uh, it's just not gonna work in that situation. I will mention one, the incredibly popular Stella Doro, Stella Oro Daylily, which is a miniature. And that's as much, it only gets about a foot tall, blooms almost 365 days a year and a relatively compact plant. But still, the bigger the container, the better, even for something like that. And then one other plant that I'm just incredibly impressed by, whether you put it in full sun or a little more shade, any of the asparagus ferns, asparagus mm -hmm. springeri, asparagus myri, asparagus retrofractus, they need a big container because they have big fleshy roots, but they can go through long periods where they live off of the moisture in those big fleshy roots and the storage tubers that associate with them. And so even if they look like they've died back completely because you forgot them for two weeks on watering, cut them back, water them, I guarantee they'll pop back up. So those are the easy ones. The other simple way to go is to just change out annuals in the planters about every six to eight weeks. I know that sounds like a lot of work, but it isn't that difficult. As you get into summer, put in Vinca rosea or the portulaca that I mentioned earlier. Try the wave petunias, you know, again, the budworm problem, but they are, they do bloom an amazing amount. Um, do those until they get overgrown or they get stressed out and then pop some new plants in. The way to do annual flowers is to plan on replanting or augmenting or cutting back and putting in some fresh new plants about every eight weeks. And that's, that's how you have a nice looking annual planter or annual border as you work with those cycles of six to eight weeks and keep new plants coming and going. The difficult period here in the valley is going to be mid-July through the end of August when it's just blazing hot and very, very low humidity. And that's when I would suggest things like portulaca or something of that sort. Okay, so I've got like a zillion questions on this. Um, it would be better to have one long continuous planter box than separate individual little pots. Oh yes, absolutely. If you can, wouldn't you can't, it? Yeah, okay. you can't possibly so, keep a little pots of water. The more soil, the better. That's the, the guiding principle. If I look okay. at a planter, and this comes up with tomatoes all the time, let's say they come up with some new thing, the topsy-turvy tomato planter. All I do is I look at it and go, how much soil does it hold? And that's going to determine to me whether it's going to succeed in our climate. And if it's anything less than the equivalent of a five-gallon container, you'll just have to water it constantly. So this goes for these planter boxes as well. The more soil volume, the better. 
Okay. So I was thinking on a standard size planter box, which is about um, two and a half feet wide, mm -hmm. not terribly deep, a couple inches wide, and it sits on, okay. But if I took one of those and I, I, I took the second one and I cut out most of the bottom so that it was like open, Mm -hmm. And then I set it on, filled up the first planter box with soil, set second one on top of it, fill that up with soil, and put my plants in that. I've now doubled the depth of the soil. Yep. Would that help? Well, well Don, come on. You know I'm creative. Buy a bigger one in the first place. <laughs> well, yeah, but, but yes. it, if you've only got that little railing to set it on, yep. if you buy a bigger one, it would fit. That's correct. Yes. The more soil volume, the better. Same principle. Okay. Yeah. Same principle. All right. So then the second thing is, we're talking about wanting to have flowers. Yeah. Um, so I, I, the things I wrote back, you've just shot down. You said daylily doesn't won't have enough soil, and and ivy geranium doesn't take the sun, and and you didn't mention dwarf cosmos, but is that possible? Only because of the upright growth habit, so I suspect it wouldn't just work out very well, but it's possible. Yeah. Cool. I'm assuming that he wants something up. He's, he's wanting to look out his window and see flowers. I'd, I would focus on verbena. Uh, there's a whole okay, thing. verbena. Yeah, and I said growing. lantana, nasturtium, yeah. dwarf sunflower, scabiosa. Back up. Nasturtiums would toast. There's no question they would just fry. Okay, no nasturtiums. Good in the okay. shade, though. Good in light shade. They're great plants. Nasturtium is something yeah. we should be planting, but hot sun in a dry planter isn't going to work for it. Okay. Lantana? Yeah, except they're a shrub. Uh, so the bigger the soil volume, yeah. the better. It's going to be challenging. Now, here's the interesting thing. Lantana is being sold all over the country as a bedding plant. You're going into nurseries in New England, the mid-Atlantic states, places and seeing lantana being sold in four-inch and quart pots. And of course, I have to assume that it grows through the summer and then you just throw it out, treat it like an annual. Here, it is a shrub or a trailing woody plant. Uh, capable of getting three to four feet tall in the case of the shrubby ones and five to six feet across in the case of the trailing ones. Probably won't do that in the container, but with adequate water, it would probably bloom okay. Uh, it's going to be stunted, or let's use the more polite term, dwarfed by the constraints on its root system, but it'll work. It'll work out. Here's the main thing. You listed a bunch of plants. I would suggest trying a bunch of plants. Because in your this particular spot, maybe there's a little afternoon shade that would help some of them go longer. Nope. Maybe it's no late sun, in which case I suspect the verbena would be a very, very successful plant as long as it's kept water. That's a, they'd plant that in Arizona. It loves heat. Uh, the mm -hmm. only constraint would be the lack of a root zone. So if you can keep it watered, in theory, you can do any of these things. In the long run, you'll probably want to just fill this thing up with succulents because, you know, they'll work in the most cases. And, uh, yeah, but there's not flowers, Don. He wants yeah, flowers. So how about this? How about, how about this? Scarlet and runner beans trailing nope. down that no, half bear. No, I guarantee they'll toast. They just, they, they just they'll toast. They won't work. Yeah. Okay. Salvia, <laughs> marigolds? Yeah, for a few weeks. Okay. So is there something that, how about that that little white um, one that that's in the bas hanging baskets? But uh, I'm I'm losing its name. It's not Alyssa. It's the other one. It's a trails and it's got white flowers. It's the tiny little white things. You're probably well. Sweet Alyssa does have white flowers. No, no uh, it's the other one. Snow in summer is another possibility with the silvery foliage. I'm going to just say no. that the best bet is to try different things that are labeled for full sun and see what works. And uh, if something works, plant more of it. But also be prepared about every six to eight weeks to just freshen it up. All these right. planters need to be freshened up every so often. If they're looking for a more permanent plant, then you're going to go over to more long-term things like succulents. 
But again, I would say my, you know, if someone came to me with this and brought in the planters and we had the long talk about why it isn't going to work, then we would plant verbena and <laughs> we'd stick in a couple of other things that I think would probably work. And we'd mentioned that during a heat wave, you're going to probably lose some of these. Well, you know what? Here's the thing about annuals. They give a great bloom for anywhere from six to 12 weeks, sometimes longer, depending on what they are. And you <laughs> should plan on, like you mentioned, marigolds, they look great at first. Uh, they're not my favorite plant because they don't hold up that well in the garden. Here they get spider mites and they need deadheading, which is not my favorite pastime. But for two weeks after you plant it, they will look great. For another three, four, five weeks, they'll probably look fine. At that point, something else in the planter, like the verbena, is really getting going. You know, the marigolds are looking rough. Just cut them back. Or, or you know, that's my preferred thing is just cut them back and sometimes they flush new growth. Or pull them out and stick in something new. By then, it'll be warm enough for vinca rosea which loves heat and probably would do fine. So your, your constraint is the, the root zone, available soil, available moisture, but you can have a steady progression of plants that are growing in and blooming, peaking out and then being replaced. That's what a gardener would do. Someone who wants something more long-term should go to lower maintenance plants that wouldn't require that grooming and trimming. And that's gonna probably steer you towards succulents. But I do wanna come back to the first one I mentioned, the portulaca sure gives you a lot of bloom in a hot yeah. situation with dry soil conditions. Okay, uh, as we've been talking, I've been envisioning in my mind a, a nice balcony with a half fence and with a, uh, a, a flower box that has a rosemary trilling, because I know we have some of those rosemaries yeah. that hang down and, yeah. and run down. And so that, and then with lots of little bulbs in it, that will pop up and bloom and then go away. Well, the what do you are, think about that one? Bulbs are certainly possible because they're all done by the time it gets hot. Yeah, I mean, little miniature narcissus, little botanical tulips would be great. And they'll stay in that pot for years. They'll just be completely done by April or May. So they'll be in there. Now the rosemary, again, like lantana, rosemary is a shrub. It's a woody plant that gets anywhere yeah. from five yep. feet across to five or six feet tall, depending on which variety you get. I know lots Trilling. of people, there are some, Irene and Prostrata and Huntington Carpet are all trailing forms, each of which are capable yeah. of going six to eight feet from the original plant if they have enough of a root zone to do that. But here's the thing, people grow herbs in planters like this all the time. And you and I know that rosemary plant could get six feet tall in the case of Tuscan Blue or six feet across in the case of Huntington Carpet, but they're growing it for an herb. And so they're clipping it and pinching it and keeping the little thing a foot by a foot. There's one called Mozart is one of the Arboretum All-Stars, probably they'll have it at their one of their upcoming plant sales, uh, which is a very dwarf compact growing rosemary, probably the best choice for a planter box like this. And it's still just as aromatic, just as good for culinary purposes. So herbs are actually a great bet, especially some of the woodier ones where you get this drip line onto them, so you know they're gonna get watered, and you and stick in a couple of you know ornamental salvias with them to give their bloom for the period that they do. Mix things in there and try different things, but herb plants, people traditionally grow very uh, dwarfed, shall we say, and they're perfectly happy with them. The one that's probably not gonna be great in there would be basil, because it'll just try and outgrow the thing too quickly. But uh, all the others, you know, thyme is a cute little shrub that gets a foot by a foot and has a pretty little pink flower. So some of the herbs would be good possibilities as well. And as you mentioned, the bulb plants will just stay in there and bloom year after year in the rainy season, you know, the rainy cool season, and then they'll be done during the summer. So they're, again, mix things, try different things, Bottom line, the greater the soil volume, the easier your life will be. Get it onto an irrigation system if you possibly can. I have these conversations with the folks in retirement communities or condominiums where 
they don't have any control over that. So, all right, then buy yourself a nice, really attractive watering can, keep it full, keep it out there, because in the summer you're gonna use it every day. You didn't mention roses. Should yeah. I give up on roses on a yeah. balcony in the hot sun? That'd be great in a half barrel. Okay. I had a customer who had her entire rose garden in, in oak half barrels. She had 30 of them and uh, she watered them just about every day because roses are big bushes and they get a pretty big root system. She thought it was great. And as she got older, it became challenging. She loved to get up early in the day, go out and water all the roses before going to work. She found it a very you know, soothing way to start the day. And I can certainly relate to that. But it became more challenging. Her mobility decreased. And so one of the things we did for her later in her life was we ran a drip system all the way around the back behind them. She couldn't see it at all. Each barrel had a quarter inch tube coming up into it that branched. So there was an emitter on either side of the plant and she turned it on. She went out, turned it on as she was getting ready to go out the door, you know, or getting, getting, doing her stuff in the morning. So it ran for 20, 30 minutes, which is just enough to fully thoroughly water a, a half barrel. And then she turned off and go to work. That worked great. That's an, and if you have it, if you, I have lots and lots and lots of container plants. I'm looking out the window and if I counted what I can just see from where I'm sitting, I think I'd get up to about 80 <laughs> different container plants. And I make it easy for myself one way or another. I'll either have a sprinkler spray system for them or drip emitters or whatever. So that all I have to do is turn on a valve, let it run for the appropriate period of time and then turn it off and go to work or whatever. Uh, so I strongly suggest if you're doing things in containers anywhere where the humidity sometimes is below 20% for 48 hour periods in February, <laughs> if you're in a place <laughs> like that, make it easy for yourself to water. Well, you actually answered the next question that I was that had queued up here to say to ask you, which is, is it easy to grow basil in pots? Yeah, if they're big enough. Um, and I've done, yeah, I've done basil. I've been experimenting with what is the right size container. I just use the nursery pots for all these different things, peppers, tomatoes, uh, eggplant, basil, and so forth. And I'm coming down to the, uh, the absolute minimum size for, for a lot of those is a five gallon nursery pot. The next size is up 10, 15 gallon. You can go a really nice planting of two or three basil plants in there and have that go all season long. And you'll keep pinching and harvesting all the way till frost. So yes, they're very easy in containers. For those of you limited for space, look for the bush basils spicy globe there's a couple other named ones out there i really like these i mean they are tight little growers about a foot by a foot they make a little shrub they bloom very quickly i long ago stopped worrying about when basil flowers i just basil the flower is fine don't worry about it the bees love it it attracts all kinds of pollinators uh you just use the leaves below the flower if you're using them for cooking and the spicy globe basil makes this tight little plant that produces for you immediately you can start pinching off of it right away and it goes all season. And that could be in a little, you know, 10 inch pot. So look around mm. for those. You can also find the seed and it's quite easy to grow basil from seed as long as you keep in mind the outdoors as soon as it comes up into the sun and air movement back in at night, if it's still cold, you know, the little shuttle that we do for the seedlings, um, get them into good air movement and sunlight very early on or else they sprawl all over the place. But overall, they're very easy from seed. You can just take the pot you're gonna grow it in. Let's say it's a 10 inch or 12 inch clay pot sprinkle four or five seeds in there, water them, put it in a warm place until they come up. The top of your refrigerator is typically ideal. As soon as it's up, if your climate allows this, move them out into a sunny porch during the day, assuming it's not snowing or whatever, move them back in at night, 
back out during the day until the nights are getting around the same temperature where we plant tomatoes and peppers. You know, night temperature is 50 degrees and up. You plant them right in the pot, they're going to stay in their whole life cycle. And I have found that that little spicy globe basil is good. I do grow all kinds of basil and the big, big ones like the lettuce leaf and the more traditional Roman style, a 10 or 15 gallon container can give you an entire pesto crop worth of basil over the course of the summer. So you can get a lot of harvest off of something like that. Well, Don, I think that we've probably just about run out of time, but I've got two subjects that I would like to propose for next time. These are questions we haven't gotten to. One is shade plants. And uh, this is a, a question. She sent pictures and everything. So that'll be a lovely discussion. And yeah, then the other is... Let me, let me embroider on that one briefly. Shade plants for a place that really never gets any sun. Yeah. So those overhang parts of your house that the architects thought, oh, we'll put a planter box here without being plant people. <laughs> the list is short, but there is a list for that. And then the other one is to continue talking about your summer planting sequence and what, what seeds go in where, when, what plants go in when, et cetera. Yes. So, so the, can so we the, carry those over? What do we, what do we call this? Uh, foreshadowing uh, for the next time. <laughs> right now, right now, we're planting tomatoes, seeds into four-inch pots. How about you? I'm not planting anything. I'm, I'm, I'm getting my vaccination shots and making new radio shows. There you go. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRT LP 95.7 in Davis, California. Community Radio relies entirely on donations from listeners like you to fund our ongoing operational costs. Your support keeps us on the air. If you appreciate local community radio, the unique voices and programming that Katerit provides, please consider contributing at whatever level you can. It's easy. Just visit katerit.org, that's K-D-R-T dot O-R-G, and click the support button. You'll find a range of options, ways that you can help keep the programming you love broadcasting at 95.7 FM on your radio dial, live streaming all around the world on catert.org. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening to Catert.